Welcome to the Brothers Zoll Podcast, a show 37 years in the making, hosted by David, John, and Simeon Zoll. Join us as we recreate some of our favorite dinner table discussions from growing up. Talking theology, culture, jokes, and everything in between. Well, this is a long time coming. This is uh, the first attempt at a uh, podcast with the three of us, the three of us Zal brothers. I am David. I'm the middle brother. And when we're talking about new projects to do for Mockingbird, my wife piped up and said, why don't you do a podcast with your brothers? Something that's not, that's that's kind of your own thing. Maybe see if that chemistry can translate. You guys, people are always asking you what it was like to grow up in your house. So why don't you just try it out and see. So that's what we're doing here. But uh, I got two of you on the line. So where are you? Who are you? And why should people listen to this podcast? Sure, I'll start. So I'm uh, Simeon Zal. I'm the youngest brother, which is my most important identity. My second most important identity, of course, is my work. I'm a theology professor at Cambridge University. So I'm over in England right now, where it's gone dark uh, already. And I've spent the day teaching students uh, about the Holy Spirit and affect theory and things. So I'm coming at the end of my uh, workday during term time. And uh, people should listen to this podcast because my brothers have a very good sense of humor and uh, I like to just sort of listen. It better not be that. So I'm, I'm John. I'm the oldest brother of the three of us, born in 1977. And I will say, you know, my brothers are my best friends. And so the moment that David suggested um, basically an opportunity to hang out, during the pandemic, when we're all in totally different parts of not only the country, but the world. I was just so excited. Um, I am also an Episcopal minister. I am the rector of a church in Bedford, New York, in Westchester, in sort of northern Westchester, just outside of New York City. John, uh, is 1977 the, the tail end of the disco era, or is it smack dab in the middle? How would you locate your birth in terms of really, the disco era? I, I am, my disco horoscope is Donna Summer, I Feel Love, which came out the month that I was born and was a great breakthrough song when disco and electronica really came together, which is really kind of what I'm all about. So um, I would say smack dab in the middle, but as very important veins in uh, dance music were just taking form at the same time. John is a is a DJ in his spare time, or you might say he's a he's a rector in his spare time from being a DJ. Depends on the week. Okay, yeah, it depends on the week. Uh, the format is that instead of talking about current events, though I'm sure stuff that whatever's going on in the world and in our lives will make it into this. The idea was to sort of riff on some larger subjects, some evergreen um, things that maybe won't go out of date so fast, and. The first topic, the one that I thought would be the right one to start with, is not disco. It's God, (laughs) capital G-O-D, God. Now, all of us, again, since I work for Mockingbird, which we end up communicating, trying to communicate something about God in light of everyday uh, contemporary life, and and Simeon is is trying to teach students uh, theology, which is the study of God, and then John is trying to pastor a congregation uh, that is, you know, vertically oriented toward God. So I I would hope we have something to say, but, you know, one one of the other animating ideas 
behind this podcast is that I remember when uh, Francis Spufford, the English writer, was speaking at a Mockingbird conference a few years ago. He was talking about why he couldn't be C.S. Lewis. He was saying that he, in order to really communicate to content, the contemporary uh, milieu, like the audience, you have to kind of take like three or four steps back. Like further from where people in the 1950s could start. They could, they could start with apologetics or something like that. My thought here is to sort of try to get get a little bit further back from where um, from where lots of I guess religious folks end up beginning, which is you know they talk about the Bible, which you know if you don't if you don't believe in God or you're not a Christian or a Jew, then why would you care about the Bible? But just just try to see when someone says God, why God? Um, why go into these fields? What keeps you coming back? I'll I'll, I'll start. I uh, I talk about God for. A living. Um, you spend a lot of time telling people how hard it is to talk about God, but I won't go uh, too theological in that way. But I mean, so to me, I guess I, I don't know how to talk about God other than in the context of what God sort of means to me. So it's, uh, like you say, I don't know how to get to where someone who doesn't have what well, God is not part of their framework. Um, I find that hard to do. I would say for me, God is the, amongst many other things, the, the framework for the horizon for all meaning in my life, relatively directly, as in, you know, when I think about how I love my kids, I don't really know how to think about that without the sense that they are somehow a gift of God to me. When I think about what I love about my work, I'm just endlessly interested in learning more about the world and about God. I mean, through the history of theology, these kinds of things are, I've never stopped being interested. And to me, that kind of inexhaustibility that it's sort of thinking about God leads you into absolutely everything. So I find it incredibly like an intellectual, just endlessly interesting thing. Um, so I mean, those are some of the sort of more abstract uh, things. So I've never tired of, of thinking about, learning about, talking about God, but it's also the, sort of the framework for, for anything I find meaningful and good. Hmm. I, I would say in, in my case, uh, sometimes there's a line I've preached before that faith begins at the place where your personal power ends. Um, in my life, God is really the place that I go in the moments when I am aware of my own sense of need or help. And as I've been a Christian for more and more time, I find that those moments are um, more and more the case, right? That my sort of experience of sanctification is one of realizing that I need God more and more in everything and in every moment. Um, but it means in a simple sense, when the internet goes out today and we're trying to have a podcast, the first thing I do in my powerlessness to make the internet work because of a windstorm is I say a prayer both to, um, you know, God, maybe some miracle, you can give us an opportunity to reconnect to the internet and still do this thing that we were able to carve out the time in our schedules to accommodate but also help me to accept if it doesn't work out. And isn't it kind of funny that maybe uh, this thing that's so important to me is not all that important to you, <laughs> even though in theory we think, oh, we're going to, you know, do you some justice, you know, make, um, make a contribution. But literally there was a prayer even in that moment, uh, because I felt um, in that moment like I was 
limited in some crucial respect. And I spent most of my life growing up being taught in the sort of secular Western world of the Northeast, especially, you know, that sort of life was about what you're able to do, personal power and prowess, mastery. Um, and for me, it wasn't until um, I found that I was in some ways paralyzed or um, limited in my ability to shape and control my destiny that I first became interested uh, in the idea that at that point there wasn't nothing, but in fact, there was everything that I had been needing to discover. So when Jesus says, if you want to find life, you have to lose it. For me, you know, that's a very concrete example of that. Yeah, that's beautiful, John. I think that we, who couldn't, who can't relate to that, to some sense of personal need yeah. leading to that, which is not you, you know, yeah. that would, that, that's what, that's what God is. I mean, is. the good news is that there is something on the other end of that, uh, sense of, you know, that's the great, am amazing surprise twist ending is that, um, there is actually, um, a loving power there on the other side of yeah. my need. And that's the thing that, I never knew or never really believed or never had reason to test. So, yeah, well, I mean, and life sort of brings you to that test. I mean, Sam, you, you're, you're living and working and operating at this point for quite a long time in what a lot of people consider to be like a post-God setting, or at least more of a post-religious setting uh, in England and in the kind of academic, educated, European um, setting than John and I. You've, you've told me that you'll be with, you know, parents of uh, other kids at your kids' schools, and they'll find out you, you, you're a theologian or you talk about God, and there, there's almost no reference, or, or they, but they're also curious. Like, explain a little bit of, do you get an incredulity, or do you get a um, curiosity, or how is that, and how do you, do you respond in that case? Yeah, I, so it, it, you, I think the the sense of how much less God is on people's in people's framework on their horizon, something that they even have the vocabulary to think about, is much is more obvious over here in Europe after all these years. Uh, and exactly like you say, when you're sort of at a at a party or something, and you look around and you realize, I don't think a single person out of the 20 couples here goes to church on Sunday, and most of them it never would have occurred to them to do so. Um, so they're, they're post a generation that sort of used to go to church and reacted against it. But the people my age are just, it's just not on their horizon at all. So I think um, there are two things. One, that can be kind of depressing because they don't even know where to start. They just sort of know that somehow it's awkward and, and gosh, well, how could you possibly, why would that be interesting to you? But they don't even want to ask that in case you sort of give an embarrassing answer, I think. Um, but then they're confused because I'm a professional academic, so I can't be quite so dumb as it sounds. So um, that's a... That's a thing that happens a lot. I think uh, at the same time, I spend my life around theologians, like the few people you know around who who are actually a lot of my students or a lot of the my colleagues and so on. People I, I see around are you know there's still there's still plenty of um, of religious faith around, 
it's just not the norm or the or the dominant thing. But uh, the the one thing that's nice is that people often they know so little that actually they find it quite interesting. Uh, the bar is so low now that when you sort of <laughs> say, well, you know, here's you know that great piece of art that you love. Um, actually, it makes a lot more sense if you understand what's going on with it theologically. Uh, and they're like, oh wow, um, that's really interesting. That's I mean that's that's like, I think a e- easy way in is to sort of talk about what people don't know that they already know, you know, or just try to try to figure out what, um, what they already, the vocabulary, they're using different vocabulary a lot of times to talk about some of the similar things, but there's also like a huge chip missing. I just, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last six months with, uh, with men sort of exercising during COVID to sort of stay sane. And very few of these guys have any kind of, uh, or what you would call churchgoers or have any uh, religious faith, especially not formal religious faith. A few of them do, but, you know, we're, we're at the end of each workout, people give a, um, usually like a thought or some sort of meaning, meaningful testimony is, is too strong of a word, but they, you know, they share something from a Ted talk or something from a, something from a novel or a, you know, a, a, a New York times or something like that. And, and you can you can hear people grasping for some kind of um, authority or wisdom or something outside of themselves. But it, what I always find is that it it, it strikes me as, as as touching. And and I don't want to put, place myself too far above it. But there's also a having to make everything up from scratch, like having a having a complete blank slate, uh, is seems to be all more confusing than less confusing. But there's also, a, there is an openness that I'm seeing. Um, there's not an op- not much openness to a certain type of Christianity, what we would just call sort of legalistic Pelagian American, capital C, capital J, Jesus land Christianity. But there is an openness to th- talking about grace and talking about mercy and talking about sin even. Uh, that you don't see elsewhere. So I'm trying to find a way into to not not to hide who I am, but to talk about it in concrete terms with people who are really struggling to make sense of whatever it is they've, they've the life they've been given. And yet, if you approach it by saying, "Well, I believe in God," well, they say, "How can you possibly believe in God?" You know, that's the that doesn't again that doesn't enter in their mind. But then they're engaged in certain, they've elevated other things to ultimate meaning and they, they certainly worship, uh, you know, this, that, or the other. And we watch as it, we're just sort of walk together through life as these things either deliver or more often than not sort of fail to deliver on their promises. I mean, John, you you end up you you since you're the only one here who actually wears a collar, you show up at cocktail parties or whoever, or you're out in public, and people they associate you publicly with with God. Do you do you feel like you get a lot of uh, interest or pushback, or or do you always have to be saying, "Well, I'm not that kind of God person"? Or I mean, it depends. I think that there's sort of two types. You know, the the joke is that if you uh, walk into a cocktail party wearing a collar, um, you can quickly clear the room out. You know, you, you literally can watch the sort of tide go out of the room. Uh, but at the same time, if you wear your collar on an airplane, you are guaranteed to learn an entire person's life story by the time you get off that plane from whoever is sitting next to you. And I think there are both of those things going on in, in uh, sort of our culture. Um, yeah. In general, I find that people are not as antagonistic and 
apprehensive, but also that most people have in, have some religious history still in the states, yeah. some history particular with with Christianity, and usually I think of it like a kind of hairball um, that it has to be sort of coughed up before they can actually take in any new uh, nourishment. <coughs> and so what I'm always waiting for is to f to hear the hairball uh, be coughed up and it has to be coughed up at me. And usually it's some <laughs> hurt or some pain or, or some getting burned by, or some, um, you know, something happened. They had a bad experience of a Christian on Halloween or, uh, on a bus or, um, in their schooling as a child or through their mother after a divorce or a stepfather or, um, you know, and I find that most people have some sort of archaeological uh, piece that is truly governing their response to anything else that I represent, that until that is out on the table, there's really no actual conversation being had. Mm. Do you feel like they have to, to cough it up every single time they see you? or is No, it just not at once? all. Once it's been coughed up once, we're good to go and we can usually move on. Yeah. Um, but until it's been coughed up, we're always dancing around the real issue. That That's is, uh, yeah. I find that very helpful. <laughs> um, maybe I should let people, I should actually ask people about their history with religion a little bit more. Nikki Gumbel from Alpha, you know, from HTB, he has a line. He says, people don't want to know what you think until you first heard what they think. It's a great frustration, especially if you're like in Simeon's camp and you're actually very learned, very knowledgeable, and are familiar with the thoughts and thinking of a, a huge you know, group of very smart and insightful people. And you have no ability to bring any of that material to bear upon a conversation until they've first told you that you know, somebody gave them a pamphlet on the street one time and they read it, you know, you're just like, seriously, that's the thing that's keeping us <laughs> from, from you even taking me seriously at all. Or that's actually driving you to completely dismiss me outright. It's so frustrating. I, I've often felt that sometimes the baggage is too big that you just want to be like, there'd be a lot of much easier things to do with my life. Uh, if I didn't have to, uh, be apologizing somehow, or at least fielding the, that psychological, psycho-spiritual, um, you know, negativity, or, or, or at least listening for it and, and, and translating it and absorbing it maybe or reflecting it back. But um, I'm assuming that a lot of other professions have different versions of this, but it feels like given how freighted religion is, especially the, the, the capital G word, God, um, I know there's been times it's enormously rewarding as as we all got to see that growing up. Um, you talk, you do talk about as Simeon says the deepest things and the most important things. You know, you're there when people are dying and when they're being born and when people are getting married. These are the great privilege of being alive and when people are breaking down. But there can be, I think, at this stage in the game, at least for me in my 40s, being like I just want to, you know, talk about rock and roll and not deal with, uh, you know, two set two 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 millennia of, of, of misconceptions and terrible abuse that the church has done or something like that, or Jerry Falwell Jr. I don't know what it is. You just want to be like, I, wouldn't this be easier to just not do it? And yet there's this yin and yang, because you, if, if you give that up, you give up the, 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 you know, grace, the gospel, 
the God being the great, you know, agent of life and hope and healing in the world, you, it's not worth it. And yet sometimes it feels like it would be. I don't know. Can you get away? And it's also, I think to me, the, um, it's also, but it's so important to you. So like, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's both what I do professionally and, and what sort of, so people, do, yeah, like don't want to talk to me about my, um, about my job in the way that they would if I, if I were a physicist or something, they'd at least try, you know, that that would be a lot easier. And I have friends who are physicists that, you know, they don't have this problem, but, um, but also uh, when it's the thing that's so important to you, you know, I mean, to me, this is the most interesting thing I have to offer uh, is to, you know, I talk about, about God and good, the good news and, um, and how it just enormously helpful it is to me. And so to not be able to, the fact that there is a kind of obstacle very often in the world in which we, at least the three of us currently live, there are parts of the world where I think we wouldn't experience this. That might be more like the past used to be. It feels a bit like you sort of are carrying a, uh, a bit of a, of a burden, um, for, uh, a world that is, that has forgotten something really important. Isn't that, um, just the nature of Christianity though? I mean, I, I always feel that, uh, you know, Martin Luther, didn't he say that sort of G God turns Christians into many Jesuses and we all then experience a life where we're carrying crosses, you know, we're kind of carrying the burdens of others. And David, you once said to me, you know, that so much of ministry is just letting people fire their arrows at you. You know, <laughs> it's just taking the hits. And I look at Christ and I see such an example of that form of life. Shut I do think it's frustrating that um, Christianity, like when you're really into it, it is so close to the bone all day long. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like you're always um, so engaged with the hardest and the, the deepest and the most f difficult parts of life. Yeah. Also the most joyous, as you mentioned, David, and the most wonderful, but it's just life in most, in its most extreme terms. This is why ministers are often talking or trying to figure out the enigmatic problem of boundaries yeah. because it is so full throttle and it is so gut level uh, that you're desperate for a world where you can just detach a little bit, yeah. whether it's through garbage pail kids or music, or, you know, I know of clergy who at this very moment have checked into rehab for alcoholism because it is, it, you know, there is this need to at times kind of escape this heavier version of reality where you're just constantly taking on the burdens of others for the sake of our Lord who did that for us. Yeah. I mean, people think that you're, it's because you're dealing with this enormous cognitive dissonance of making God fit into some narrative of life that makes sense. But in fact, the reason people in ministry and Christians uh, get, get so burnt out or tired, I think is, has much more to do with the, you cannot escape the heaviest things of life. And if you're, so if you're a person preaching or trying to write or something like that, it's, it's not the writer's life too. I mean, this is something I've learned as a writer, but you cannot um, phone it in. At least you you can, and everyone will know, or at least everyone with, a, with with ears to hear will know. But if you actually are sort of delving into where the material, and you're talking about life, death, sin, deliverance, uh, 
you know, uh, bondage, all of these things and dysfunction. If if you're really going there in yourself week after week or month after month, I mean, you just, it's sometimes you want to be like, I I just want to, you understand why men just want to go play golf on Sunday. But it's interesting to ask, why is it that Christianity does that? That it, cause it, that does, it sort of sounds pretty negative. Yeah. So I remember a a sermon uh, preaching in a, in a college chapel context, which is the worst possible context to preach in because you you don't know who's there, so you have no sense of who you're preaching to uh, at all. But the uh, and it was about death and 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 you know sort of just saying that you know, Christianity makes me think much more about death than than not the idea that you don't think about death um, it's somehow religion is an opiate you know that it, it it allows you to not have to think about hard things in life. I get, really my experience is the reverse. But the thing is, it's not that the hard things for their own sake, it's because they're the true things, and that we spend most of our lives talking about nothing, and people don't tell you what's really going on. And so, you know, it's actually a commitment to what's really there, to actually loving a person is caring what's actually happening, and often that's that's not a great thing. It's being attuned to other people's needs and insecurities and, and all these kinds of things, and, and being feeling bound to care. Um, so it, it's it's not negative for its own sake, but it's it's attentive to reality. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm struck also. You know, we we grew up with a great example, uh, specifically in. Yeah. Let's let's cough up the hairball in the room. Just uh, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We love so, you, Dad. Um, you mean Mom? Our, our dad, Paul Zoll. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, you know, well-known uh, minister and theologian. And who just we, general eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovable one thing, eccentric. Paul I don't know about yeah. you guys, but I learned uh, early on, um, and I, I, I'm now exactly this way, I think, with my kids. Is basically, there are two things that are worth kind of talking about. Either incredibly real, serious things about what's actually going on with people emotionally, spiritually. You know, either we'll talk about real things or let's talk about our our obsessions and, and side projects and pop culture and uh, and jokes, you know, and, and either have yep. be completely having fun and escaping and sort of processing obliquely, or let's talk about whereas, but like small talk is just like that. You just watch Dad's eyes, just you know, someone talking about something that's not really what's going on. He'd rather do anything, and I've I think I've inherited that, but I think that's actually a function of what <laughs> we're talking about. I just find though when you actually start talking about this stuff that supposedly is. I mean, it's definitely heavy, but that there is a lot of space within that realm for things like humor, right? Um, You know, and and for creativity. And um, it's just sort of a different plane. Uh, And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it that are held by people who don't want to play in that field. But I also do think there is a, a, this is a a type of mode of thought that you sort of enter into when you become a person of faith that initially is so foreign that um, it takes a huge amount of acclimation. And I, I remember calling dad because I I just started to enter into such a head trip with it all. And um, he, I said, dad, you know, I, I, I just, I'm so, cognizant of like all the things I'm doing and why I'm doing them and, and what other people are doing and why they're doing them. And I said, I honestly think I might go a little nuts. And you know what he said? He said, son, welcome to the Christian life. I'll never forget that. The other thing that I love though is mom's line where she says, God is found in reality. And for me, I find that as long as I'm avoiding facing something, I'm not really living in reality. 
And that the moment I actually address whatever the thing is, pro or con, and usually it's con that is the thing I don't want to address, when I finally do, it almost never turns out to be what I am afraid it is on the front end. Like Bill Wilson in the big book says, you look under, it's in the 12 and 12. He says, most of our fears turned out to be boogeymen that weren't even there. And a lot of faith is kind of like looking under the bed where you think there's a monster only to discover that the thing that you're so afraid of isn't really a specter at all. I mean, that's, that's, again, I think one of the things we're circling around, which is uh, a, a great inheritance. When I think about like what we what we received with our quite, you know, as you look back, it was a really wonderful childhood, but also, um, you know, not like a lot of other kids' childhoods, you know, being dragged to like weird churches in the English countryside and being told there was a famous pulpit and watching your dad like basically try to break in this through the stained glass window that might be open. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are some weird things that we experienced. True stories on every count. And and we're sort of like, Dad, this isn't famous. This is this couldn't be less famous. But this yeah, uh, you'd say very famous, except that the road is not on a map. <laughs> but um, one of the things we inherited was this view that basically everything is psychological, but which means everything is spiritual. There, there's always a false divide between the psychological and the spiritual. But he he would when you're listening to someone talk about God or or you're 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 even beginning that conversation, you have to have ears to hear what they're really saying, and what they're really saying is usually some form of hurt or some sort of anger uh, or some form of. Um, you know, um, abandonment or, or just confusion. But I remember when I got to college and I'd just do what we would do at home and sort of unpack the reasons why people in a slightly haughty, maybe superior way, but because you're 18 and you're trying to dress down what, why a professor felt the need to, you know, go on such and such a rant. And, and, uh, but I, everyone around me found it so compelling. And I thought, oh, this is just, it's all feels supposed to feel like a parlor trick. The other thing I was thinking about when it comes to the God question is it's a big, it, there's a l large and it relates to mom and my, our parents, but there's always a question of who do you trust? Like, um, do, do you trust CNN? Do you trust Oprah Winfrey? Or do you trust uh, Bob Dylan? Or do you trust anyone but your parents? Or do you trust your parents? I mean, I feel like I trusted, just given the transparency with which we were raised around sort of real problems and real questions. I, I, I came to trust, it doesn't mean that I felt that they were infallible in any way, but I trusted their perspective on the world and what was important. In the same way as today, when someone is quoting, I don't know, um, uh, some important spiritual figure, like do I trust Dak Shepard or do I actually have more trust for George Harrison? I was never convinced that mom and dad were idiots, even when I had no interest in what they thought. You know, <laughs> yeah. like mom, you, you knew know, that you were going to have to contend with it at some mom point. Mom was a chemistry major. I mean, I, I still remember feeling like chemistry was the hardest class I've ever taken I did not know that. That's the life. first I've ever, I did not know that mom you was know, a chemistry major. Yeah. Isn't that That's fascinating? Yeah. But I just, I, so even when they were interested in this sort of Christian mode of thought and lifestyle, I, I, and I was not. 
<laughs> let's just put it that way. Uh, I still, I never was able to completely shrug them off as just being ignorant or naive or idiotic or something like that. And I don't know, did you feel that way? To me, uh, so especially when you're teaching um, theology and, and just in the, in the sort of the world of theology, you encounter a lot of people who grew up with um, in forms of Christianity that were really anti-intellectual or, or that hurt them in some way or other, and that, that part of the turn to theology is sort of a, a, a way to either save or redeem you know, what was good uh, in what they had or to, to learn how to, how to correct uh, and move on from you know, the, the thing they didn't like before. And it's, you know, it's pretty common in different forms, set of motivations, I would say. Um, and I've just never had that at all. Um, and it's, a, it's been a great kind of advantage, just that my parents um, were always very credible and honest um, when it came to matters of religion, uh, you know, deeply informed, very sincere, not judgmental. Um, and intellectually and, hungry. Oh, and yeah, for, yeah voracious. That's really important. Voracious. Yeah. Dad was just always interested in in the world. I mean, his Christianity, well, both of them, but um, led him into new interests all the time and learning more about things. And that was a, rather than being something that that limited his intellectual uh, frame. Right. But you get older and you realize how rare some of that is. Um, And it it makes makes me sad, but it also makes me grateful, you know, to to realize that that was what we were brought up with. You know, John, one of the things, you gave a sermon, a wonderful sermon one time that I think I wanted to make sure we <laughs> talked about, uh, where you gave the best argument for atheism, and then you sort of, uh, you, you, you addressed it, and I've, I borrowed this from you and not given you credit in certain ways, but you, you're the one who came up with it. Uh, tell me, what, what does that sermon say, and how does it, does it still speak? Funny, I was talking about this on Thursday night. Uh, in my class. And I actually got the great quotes for it from Simeon, who was at the time working on his PhD. But I remember taking a class in college at Kenyon um, where I was a philosophy major, you know, the famous degree that everybody says uh, has no relevance and only equips you to get a job in ancient Greece. I think that's what Conan O'Brien said in his Dartmouth address in 2011. But uh, I use my philosophy degree every single day in my job and I'm grateful for it. And one of the classes I had to take was called 19th century philosophy. And so it was people like Hegel and, um, and in particular, um, Feuerbach. And Feuerbach may sound like a very obscure name, right? But he's actually the guy, Simeon, correct me if I'm wrong, who gave Marx and Engels the famous argument for atheism that is at the heart of communism. And uh, Feuerbach said, that basically faith is wish fulfillment and that all um, of what humans have done, who, what Christians have done, and he writes this in his book that's sort of a critique of Christianity. He says, Christians have taken all of the things that they hope for and wish for and call good and they have put them in the sky and called them God, right? And it is an incredible critique of what we call in theology, the theology of glory, which is where you say- Psychologically astute too. Yes, deeply, because 
people, you know, there's that comedian Maria Bamford who says um, she lives in L.A. and everybody's so spiritual. They're always talking about how I pull into the parking lot of the mall and I'm thinking if it's meant to be. And then right at that moment, a parking space opens up. And so I pull in and I go to the gap and sure enough, the sweater is 75 percent off. And it's like, I get it. I'm on the path, you know. <laughs> now that is f what Feuerbach says Christianity is. There are inclinations that we all have to want to basically turn God into a sort of um, wish fulfillment that is baptized in spiritual lingo. And just the sort of fulfillment of the heart. And I always find that to be an incredibly compelling critique of problematic ideas about faith and God. I also find that actual Christianity is none of those things, <laughs> that it is, it is anti-wish fulfillment, right? Like, who wants to be crucified? You know, who would ever wish for suffering to be the gateway to fulfillment? Or who would ever in a million years want putting somebody else ahead of the self to be the avenue to which they will, through which they will find the personal fulfillment. Yeah, it's not, it's not an actual right. instinct. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, Feuerbach is the guy that I always think about with the great critique of atheism. And I find that unless you get into Jesus, you usually are dancing around that issue. Right. Um, but that Jesus is just such a counterexample to Feuerbach. You're absolutely right. I mean, about Feuerbach, the sort of you know, religion as projection, projection of our of our desires into the sky. Um, and uh, and he actually so many people said to him, yeah, but it doesn't apply to Luther, that he wrote a whole book just trying to refute the Luther uh, charge because that the, the, the form of Christianity represented by Luther is, is, is so different. But the other part of it, though, is that, you know, um, anything that works would be subject to that critique. I mean, like, you know, the, the thing that if I have a need and then it gets met, you could say it's wish fulfillment. But... <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, there, there, it's a it's a bit of a an argument it that only applies. Everything. Yeah. yeah. What else do you think about that, Sam? Keep talking. Well, um, so I think uh, in a way, you know, there's a there's a great line from well, David Bentley Hart is actually not always my favorite person, but he said uh, that basically he wishes that um, atheists would read better atheists because people like Feuerbach actually said interesting things that are worth engaging with. And I think that's true, because of course, there is a lot of projection and wish fulfillment in Christianity, in forms of it, in, in places. And uh, and that's just how human beings are, I think. But in, in, when you actually get into the religion itself and the image at the center of it, of this humble human being uh, who died uh, on a cross, I mean, you know, it, it really is a very different world um, than than that. Uh, but I just, part of me says, oh, I just wish I could get to the point where I could actually have an argument, uh, a rational argument with someone about these kinds of things. I don't yeah. end up in that situation very much. I also would say, I don't think that people, um, I, I now am so cynical about the idea that people don't believe in God for intellectual reasons. If someone tells me that's what they think, then I, um, I have to sort of check myself because I, I, that makes me not take you them as seriously. I don't, I don't believe that it means yeah. to me they're not very right. self-aware. 
It's always like, oh, it turns out Elaine Pagel's friend died in a motorcycle accident and a Catholic priest refused to bury her friend or do a funeral. And then uh, suddenly all of her scholarship makes sense. I'm hoping at least that we could talk a little bit as though these psychological factors are not the case today. You know, yeah. that we could just talk about God actually, like in a somewhat apologetic sense or in, a, in the, the sense that you guys personally, when you think about God um, outside of the realm of all of our baggage, you know, what do you find compelling or what today do you hold on to that when you in your moments of doubt, you know, speaks to you about what it means to really believe that God is real. Like, what, do you guys have any thoughts yeah. about that? Is that okay to go in that no, direction, Dave? Let's go definitely in that direction because the yeah. whole point, I, yeah, th that's where I want to be. Um, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm coming off of reading some aspects of Simeon's book. So there, there's his book about the Holy Spirit in uh, Christian experience. And um, so I am thinking about the motives people have for talking about God in a certain way and what they actually mean when they say the word God. And sometimes, I, one of the questions I was thinking about as we were coming to this episode was, does it help to give people different names for God? Are there, are there, are there some times in which a semantic issue, it, the semantics really are the issue? And is that a way to get around the psychological baggage? And I, I think it's, it, it, has an, it, it can be efficacious, but only to a certain extent. But that, that's me also dodging your question. I, I don't think you can really, at this point in my life, God is, capital G God, is so abstract and big, and it does lead me into these theodicies and hmm. questions of pain and um, fairness and uh, just personal hopes and dreams, that it's very difficult to talk about God at all without talking about Jesus. And that's, mm. I remember, I'll never forget, I had a roommate one time who said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in God. I'm just not really much of a Jesus guy. And I was thinking like, well, I feel the exact opposite way. Me too. Like I'm, I'm more of a Jesus guy and less of a God guy because God could mean anything. And God is, God is, what is it? What does John Lennon say? God is a concept by which we measure our pain. And, and there's probably some truth to that. But Jesus is not a concept by which we measure our pain. Jesus is a, is a person. And you read, I remember Nick Cave, the great singer, the, the songwriter. He just says his favorite character in the Bibles. He was, he was asked, what, who's his favorite character in the New Testament? He says, Jesus, by far. Like every, <laughs> he, he never is what you think he's going to be. And he always keeps you on your toes. And as years go by and life happens and joys and sorrows occur, and Nick Cave is a person who lost his son for crying out loud, uh, Jesus remains compelling and they're the, the man of for many seasons the man of great sorrows all of these things I find myself I haven't moved on from Jesus in a way that I can move on from other religious ideas that I would get excited about when I was younger and sometimes I need a more compelling like a Francis Spufford to come to come and to describe the 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 countercultural counterintuitive power of this man um, recently, I was reading this um, graphic novel called The Harrowing of Hell, uh, which is a depiction of Jesus going into hell or after his uh, crucifixion, before his resurrection. And it got at something of the, the, the person of Christ in a way that was laid me flat a little bit in my 21st century malaise. What was it? 
Um, the combination of meekness and force that is, and and the the undauntedness and 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 the the complete. Um, uh, he, he's so he's so pathetic compared to the, but and I use that word or pitiful, you might say, in comparison to the forces allayed against him. Because you watch this Christ, who's this really he really underlines how um, you know simple. Of a, of a person he was and had no crown outside of a crown of thorns and he's going into hell and uh, uh, which is which is filled with the horrors and suffering people and devils and um, ultimately Adam and like the the Judas and all these things and I just felt that there's something that um, the still small voice uh, or the um, the merciful friend in the midst of the huge, the tide, the human tide of, of, of sin and sorrow and pain and coming at this simple, unassuming, yet somehow pure man, um, that there is, it just felt, it just, it's divine in a way that is unconstructed. I don't know. I, I, that was, that was my recent way in. Oh, I so relate. Simeon, do you have any thoughts? I have many thoughts, yes. Um, I mean, so in terms of of what God means for me, there are two dimensions. There's always been this strongly intellectual side. I mean, my, when I sort of was converted as a as a or teenager, I would say it had to do with the a sense of the the beauty of some of the the ideas, the the reversal of values, um, especially the you know the strength being made perfect in weakness, and that came not to be served but to serve, um, and uh, the, the kind of stuff actually that Dave was just describing. Um, I found that immensely compelling, but I've never been able to separate how I found that so attractive and moving and life-changing from um, from 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 how I think about it as a kind of set of ideas. I mean, that makes it sound so kind of anemic, but it's always been an intellectual component. And I, uh, if ever, I, you know, I'm feeling d- doubt. I mean, sometimes I just think well, it's amazing that I've I've not stopped being interested in this. That I've I've keep learning new things and keep thinking about God and keep teaching about the two natures of Christ and the different theories of atonement and all these kinds of things. And I never tire. I, it's always something new there. So there's something about that kind of superabundance of, of interest. It sounds, it, 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 I feel like I'm not describing it very well, but that, that is meaningful to me and always has been. But, but the other thing that comes to my mind is um, uh, we have this b- wonderful, the old version of um, The Pilgrim's Progress for kids called Dangerous Journey, which has these incredible yeah. um, paintings and that we had in our house as children. I remember taking it off of a shelf sometime. I don't really remember when. Um, and uh, when I read it to my kids, I cry like every other page. Like I cry more times in one, in three nights of reading Pilgrim's Progress, Dangerous Journey, than I do in like the previous four months. Um, and it's basically because that that book mainlines a lot of the, the 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 beauty of the religion. You know, when you realize that one of his companions is going to die in the next town, and you see how the main character gets de- gets caught in the ca- in the basement of giant despair and gets depressed, and yet there's hope for him uh, that comes through, uh, and the way in which that all ties in with the with the Christian story. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I, I feel deeply, deeply understood, uh, and sort of loved at a level that I've never I've never gotten over it. Uh, and I the way I talk I, and that's 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 God God in Christ. I totally relate to 
what both of you are sharing um, in so many ways. And I do, David, find that the more I think about Jesus and pour over scriptures and his teachings and his life and example and the, not just the crucifixion and the resurrection, which are, you know, the sort of seminal climaxes and apex, but more just like the parables. The parable of the workers in the vineyard to me is so brilliant and so otherworldly um, that I just never get over it. The, the power dynamic shift that he seems to be advocating in um, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, um, the idea of not fighting power headlong with counter opposing force is to me such an unbelievable and life-giving idea and that that idea is at the heart of love those kinds of ideas, I just don't find them anywhere else. Um, or when I find them, I find that they're almost always derivative of Christianity in some form. Um, and, you know, even this morning I was reading Philemon, the letter to Philemon, where there's the story of St. Paul. Um, asking, you know, uh, Onesimus to be taken back by Philemon after he's a slave who's run away. He's stolen from the guy, run away. And now Paul encourages him to go back. And it's just like, I mean, there's, we would not have Les Miserables if it was not for the letter to Philemon with Jean Valjean and his experience with the bishop, right? Even the littlest, most forgotten, obscure letter of Philemon gives us Les Mis. You know, I find that that kind of stuff, you know, there's not a day when I actually take the time to um, read the Bible that I just don't find it to be deeply inspired. And also, as you mentioned, Simeon, sort of psychodynamically astute. It, it, it goes right to where I really am and where I can't quite take myself um, without it. It's something bigger and something from outside speaking inside to me and addressing me from um, an alternative vantage point. Um, but I, I also find that, um, like I, I find when Jesus says that if you want sort of to believe in God, it, that God is like, or the spirit is like the wind in a tree, that that very simple analogy where you can see its effects, but you can't see it with your eyes visually. I, I on a, right now it's a very windy day here in Rhode Island and I'm looking around and I'm just thinking that is still such a great analogy for God that I find to really have compelling and convincing apologetic weight. Because I think everybody believes that there is more going on in this world than they are aware of. Right, yeah. then they sense, you know, whether it's just electricity coursing through power lines all around them that they don't see. And yet every time they turn on a light switch, they are acting in faith. It, you know, I, I find that. Um, yeah, there's most, a, there's a, Yeah. When you say, don't you do you really not believe in anything that you can't see? Yeah, I know. I was I would always that's I go there, too, when I'm talking. It's like, I mean, isn't what's unseen much more important, like the, the love you feel for your children or for your, your spouse or these, the, well, what's unseen is so clearly more important than what's seen. <laughs> yeah. When I'm alone with you, when I look in your eyes, it's more than molecules and so much more. 
yet it's there's so much resistance to that idea because people think you're talking about ghosts. And yet you talk to people who've lost loved ones and you're like, have you, have you ever felt their presence here? I mean, I don't want to go. It, we, we just finished Halloween. But yeah. I, John, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent in that um, you, you want to when people I, I was reading a review of this wonderful movie that I about called Electric Jesus. And it was a review of a guy in India writing for Mashable. And this very first line was like, anyone who believes in science knows that there's no such thing as a god. And yet this is a pretty good movie. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? A, that's a hugely arrogant statement to begin a movie review with. But it's also you just want to say, well, you you want to dismiss everything unseen uh, in the name of science right off the bat? They say that science is true. That limits you from talking about vast swaths of human experience. In fact, it, almost it limits you to very to be able to talk about very, very little, unless you're willing to go down to like the electron microscope level. And yet, you know, one of the other things I think that's important to do whenever we're talking about God is is to go the full route and use the. For me, it's the Walker Percy line that I that I included at the end of Seculosity, which is like, well, well what else is there? Like, what 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 is it that you're finding so compelling as a substitute or as a lack of substitute? Um, or do are you really not substituting your God for something else? Because I don't. I, I'm suspicious of that because uh, I'm suspicious of myself in that regard. And so you you want to say. Um, Let's let's talk about the alternatives. Remember when when Tim Kreider got up there to talk about how much he liked Nietzsche at, at a Mockingbird conference? The New York Times writer, and it, it, he's an atheist, but he and he and he he said like we've been trying to replace God with all this other stuff, and it's just not working out very well. And that's it. he basically in that moment, I was like, I think I should write a book about that because that's a compelling. A psychological, experiential, but also empirical um, way in to talk about God, to talk about what what is not what, what we've the alternatives and how um, how much they seem to offer and and how little they actually deliver. In fact, they deliver anxiety and they deliver loneliness and exhaustion and despair. They deliver suicide, really. You see this working out in the lives of the people around you, right? And Absolutely, all day long. It's a bunch of people trying to appeal to these other things for their sense of comfort and security. But um, I do want to hear more from Sim. I, I feel like we haven't given him fair opportunity to respond, as is always the case at the dinner table, too. It's uh, a, a skill that I learned in my life is to not have to talk f first, and I learned that at the dinner table, I think. I'm sorry, Sim. I'm sorry about that. I'm less sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, there are two things I wanted to say in relation to that. One is um, I do agree. I, don't, I, I look around and I see the things that people are... are Often they're just not finding meaning somewhere. It's it's just so bad what what's really going on, or um, that I just don't even know how to start the conversation. But um, anyway, for me, it's just it's religion, God, these ideas, Jesus the, are just electric and remain so after twenty years or whatever it is. Um, and uh, and so it does seem like anything else seems to pale a bit um, in comparison. But the uh, the other thing I, I notice, I don't know about you guys, so I have this. 
I think it's partly because I feel that so deeply that I, I, I find it hard to talk about because I get defensive. I don't like being defensive uh, when I talk about God. I don't want to like be the guy who wants to win the argument. I, I mean, it's very easy to sort of get annoyed at the bad ideas people have or whatever. And I don't like that part of myself because like, it feels sort of insecure. But just reflecting now, I think it also feels like um, it's so, I'm, it, it matters so much to me actually, that that's why it's hard to talk about. Um, it's like when someone starts telling you about um, when their sibling died or something, you know, you suddenly everything gets really serious. And that's a very special thing. And it's, you don't want to sort of break that out all the time. But it's also my job is to do religion. So I sort of, I don't know, I find myself in a, in a, in a bind uh, that way. But I think, anyway, I, I worry that I'm insecure to talk about it. But actually, I think it's, I feel vulnerable because it, just because it matters to me so much. R rather than because I don't ha have, I have any sense that I'm, I might lose an argument or something. That's not, that's not and why what, it's hard. And what is it that matters to you so much? Like, what does really Simeon Zoll believe that for you really is just material that you cherish at every level? Gosh. Um, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, yeah. funny you say that, Dave. I mean, th this thing that I was describing that I sort of get from reading Dangerous Journey, um, I, yeah. I, the, the original form of it for me in my life uh, is, is definitely the Lord of the Rings. I read that book five times by the age of... I don't know, 12 or whatever it was. It was, I sort of lived with that book uh, so much so that I don't want to talk about it. I'm, I'm in Oxford. I'm in Cambridge. Every, all these people around me are doing PhDs on the inklings and stuff like that. And I, I don't talk about the fact that I spent my entire childhood, um, you know, learning how to write Tolkien's runes and Sindar and everything. Um, uh, I remember the yeah. Samarillion. So, oh, but that, I think that's uh, why the, I've the, never read it. <laughs> but the reason, I mean, I think there is something fundamental about part of why that is such an amazing book and a work of genius is because it captures a sense of the God-saturatedness of the world together with the Christian sort of sad, hopeful realism, uh, but hope beyond hope, that there really is a hope and there really is uh, an uttermost West. Um, and yet being clear-eyed, um, and also in a way that makes everything in the world sort of saturated with meaning. So these days I would talk about that in terms of a, a certain kind of metaphysics that Christianity has that enables us to think uh, those thoughts. But um, I didn't know that when I was a kid. And uh, and it, it's really set, it was one of these things, they set the direction in your life. Um, mm -hmm. I've never gotten past those feelings that I oh. had while reading The Lord of the Rings uh, at the age of 12. David's holding up a copy of what is maybe my favorite book my father's written. It's PZ's Panopticon. Controversial opinion there, John. Controversial opinion. The Wall Guide to World Religions. All and right. in that book, I was hoping you could go to the section at the very end called The Contraption. I really do believe that behind it all, and in spite of all the crap, there is a beneficence, um, a totally strange, but it makes me think of that Japan, Japanese animated movie, um, Simeon, called uh, Howl's Moving Castle, is what I always think of. Um, that's, that, that image is what I think of when I read this section from Dad's book. And if you want to talk God, big G, not God, J, as in Jesus, 
if I go to sort of the beneficence at the heart of and just beyond our perception in the universe, I think about the contraption. Well, let's let me, let, why don't it. I why don't I read it? Because I think you know any conversation about God, which we've already we've a lot of words here that we've we've given and a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions. And I think that what we've been trying to say is that I we don't actually need more ideas about God. What we need is is God, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, the contraption is. Is, is uh, his description of an experience of God. Our father had a, you know, who's uh, never at a loss for words, was brought to his knees at a very painful time in his life. And he talks about this, the contraption in, in which all of the mental faculties, uh, even, even emotional ones, were sort of overwhelmed by what he would call a vision. And this is what it says. April 2nd, 2013, Miss Umbrellas of Sherbrooke, 1970, and I, that's his word from my mother, are walking down the same brick pathway where we had more or less collided the day after the Age of Aquarius, where they met at UNC, University of North Carolina. The whole world has happened since that momentous day, and that day was the day after the worst night of my life. Suddenly, and this really happened, I saw something in the sky. It was huge. It looked just like the floating space galleon in Time Bandits. It was a giant floating ship. That is what it looked like. It was creaking and kind of wafting and was completely complex, like the black light UFO which floats over Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind in that scene where he stops his power truck by the mailboxes. I knew immediately to call it the contraption. The contraption was over our heads, drifting very gently, almost wafting. All I could hear was a kind of winding sound or clicking. It was so physically powerful seeing the contraption, capital C, over my head that I felt I was being pushed backwards. Or was it forward? The feeling I had was a feeling of total awe. What was it? What did I see? It was a mystical experience for certain, as real to me as typing this page is now. Mary didn't see the contraption, although she knew something was happening with me. It was around two o'clock on a sunny afternoon, yet to me the sky had turned completely dark, like that night 43 years before. The contraption was in black light, and there it was, creaking its way across the sky like a thousand pieces of interlocking wood. What I knew there and then, on Monday, April 2nd, 2013, is that God exists. A night and day almost exactly 43 earlier years earlier was bound to my April morning that morning with a unity that could only take my breath away. It convinced me in five seconds, not ten minutes anymore, that God exists and I am in his mind. Mary too, hence everyone to whom we have given birth and everyone to whom they have given birth and everyone I have ever known. So I wanted to race you to the bar and tell you, as simply as possible, what it was that convinced me there is a God. I don't expect you to agree with me, but I do expect you to say, okay, Paul, something happened to you. You say you saw the contraption. It put everything together. I believe you. I think that is as good a note to end on as any. And guys, this has been so fun. Um, Thank you both. We'll, we'll come back at you in a, soon with another a major topic. <laughs> Simeon, Simeon, had you ever read The Contraption? Me? Had you read, yeah, have you read The Panopticon? John, I, I edit everything. <laughs> you edited that. Anything you've read from Simi- from me or Dad yeah, okay, has been it. gone through the Simeon got filter. It. Got it. I thought maybe I'd pull something alert. out of the hat that you guys hadn't remembered. Anyway. Oh. No, that was great. Well, thank you both. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Okay, great. Bye, right. guys. Awesome. Love you guys. Bye. 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 
so much for listening to us do our thing we hope you've enjoyed it we do invite you to leave a rating or a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you've enjoyed this and please tell your friends about it audio production was provided by tj hester and you can find mockingbird on the web at www.mbird.com see you next time